Good morning. That was a hearty good morning. Good job. I want to welcome you guys this morning as we worship God and we gather together in this place. And I want to welcome you that are online. We're super excited about what God's doing. Fall is here and all of the events and all the things that we got going on. Last week we opened up with a special presentation from Operation Christmas Child. And for those of you that may not have made it or, or just really are, are wanting to know more, each week we're going to present a different video or a different presentation about Operation Christmas Child and, and really what it's all about. Our goal is to have just from WCF 400 boxes from our church and then 100 boxes online. We'll be a distribution center and then we're going to pack them all up and a bunch of other churches from Columbia County are going to come here the third week in, I think it's the third week in November, and we'll, we'll pack them all up. So right now, our wall is pretty low. So I want to encourage you guys, watch the video and may the Lord move upon your heart to uh, think about the boxes that you'll pack for the kids. Hola, I am Margarita. Hi, I'm Barbara. And, and together, we are the Happy Grandmas. How do you guys meet? Okay, that was a long time ago. We were in a Sunday school class together. And I, I remember Margarita, and I remember her asking a lot of questions. And, I, and I'm very shy, so I wasn't asking any questions. We're more than friends. We're sisters, you know. Oh, yes. How are you? And, and we have traveled together. Oh, we have so much fun traveling. She is a comedian. I mean, I think this is our, the last season of our lives, I guess. Or maybe the second to last, <laughs> maybe. We've been making these cutlies, these uh, stuffed animals. They have been going to different missions with our churches. We were praying, Lord, give us a, a, a ministry that we can just provide continually. We knew about Operation Christmas Child through our churches. Then we said, maybe these little guys can go in there. Yeah. We can come up together with a uh, script to put on a little label on the plastic bag that we put them in to tell a child you know, God loves them just like they are and that they're, they're perfectly imperfect just like all of us are. It's showing God's love for them. It's like a comfort. The name Comfort Cuddly, we always wanted that word comfort to be present when whoever receives them gets the comfort from God. And it's a cuddly because it's, you can cuddle to it. They may use up their soap and their different things, but if they can keep this to hold, it'll make them think of God loving them and holding them. See, he has his own personality. <laughs> We've made just over 5,000 cuddlies since 2017. It's contagious, you know, people we talk all the time. We say, oh, I want to help. I said, oh, yeah, you can donate even, you know, your clothes you know you can donate that's a nice top barbara we can use that for she's cut. gonna cut my shirt <laughs> if i can see and if i can sew and if i can cut and trace i'll be doing this until i die <laughs> i tell my kids i'm staying to 100 and they're like why would you want to do that 
And I said, I have cuddlies to make. I have things to do. And as long as God keeps me healthy, we will continue. We make them, God place them. So the new ministry of the cuddly grandmas will be starting next week. <laughs> you never know what God's going to do and, and how to connect with one another and, and ministry. And that's what we want to be able to do. And that's what I want to do right now. I want to take a couple of minutes and I want you to go find somebody that you don't know. Oh, wait, wait. Pascal, you're making me get out of my comfort zone. Yes. You got two minutes. Find somebody you don't know. Introduce yourself to them and... Say hi. So I want to pray for our time this morning as we enter into a time of just worship, being before the throne room of God. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we can come before you. And as I Prepared for this morning, I thought about our trip to Turkey and a real godless nation and how privileged we are to be able to live in a place where we can worship you freely and that through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus that we can come to the throne room of grace freely. We want to do that now. Help us, God, by your spirit to set aside the cares and the concerns of the day. And just be in your presence. And to worship you with the totality of our life. May you be honored by what is about to happen. And Holy Spirit, may you teach us through the study of your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is
time, I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. And as we continue in our worship, just giving back just a portion of what he's just blessed each and every one of us with. Amen.
Absolutely amazing. Thank you for coming into this place and just filling our hearts and filling these walls with the beautiful music that we can just lift up to you and just be together with you, God. And just prepare our hearts as we get ready to receive your message from Pastor Kerry. And thank you for everything that you do for every one of us every day. And in Jesus' name, amen. As you're finding your seat, will you find your way over to Acts chapter 17? As we continue our, our journey through Acts and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit of the church. God made everything in this world, amen? And when he created everything, do you remember what he said at the end of the creation of each one of the days? He said what? It is what? Good. It was all good until sin entered in and turned everything upside down, messed everything up. And we think about our world, we live in a world today that is upside down. Evangelist Billy Sunday said this, the world is wrong side up, it needs to be turned upside down in order to become right side up. You think about that statement, we... We are existing in a society, in a world system, where it is literally the wrong side up. People declare that which is right, wrong. People declare that which is truth, a lie, but then they say the lie is the truth. People state 
all kinds of falsehoods and all kinds of things as normal, they would rather seek the darkness than to live in the light. Or am I wrong? Is that kind of how it, it is? And, and the scary thing about this is everybody thinks it's normal. It is not normal. Satan is doing a really good job in normalizing sin, sorrow, and suffering. People have, have been in the wrong side of, of things for so long that they don't even get it. They're accepting of it. Well, that's just the way it goes. That's the way that it's always been. No, it's not in this. And when the truth is presented to people, people consider that truth as being abnormal. It challenges them. They're not used to seeing the truth. They're not used to hearing the truth within this. And the fact is, Jesus, when he came, he brought a revolution. Jesus was very revolutionary. He wasn't bringing this, this political revolution, although many people were thinking that he, he was. He, he wasn't leading a, a military revolt. He wasn't leading a man-centered revolution. But what he was doing was he was being a revolution against sin. Saying, look, at living in sin is not normal. Because it's, your sin separates you from God. And you were not created to be separate from God. You were created to be in relationship with God. How is it that we have fallen so far away? How is it that we've gotten so screwed up? When Jesus came and died on the cross and rose again and conquered sin and death, He came to give freedom from sin, to bring truth and light into a very dark world. And He was labeled as a revolutionary. Yes, Jesus is a revolutionary. And if you're a Christ follower, you are a revolutionary. Not for military purposes and not for social purposes, but spiritual. It is a spiritual war that we wage against Satan. Make no mistake, we are at war in so many different ways. And we are fighting for the souls of people. And our calling is very clear to go and to preach the gospel of truth. But the reality is Satan is not going to go down without a fight. If you choose to be bold enough to preach the gospel in an unprecedented way, if you unapologetically stand for the gospel and for the truth, you will have a target put on your back. Are you bold enough to do it? Or are you going to go with the flow? Years ago you think about... Uh, I heard about this statement, you know, any dead fish can float downstream. It's the live one that has to move upstream within that. Within that, we've we got to understand, we need to stop floating with the flow. And living in, in that world that is against us. But sharing the gospel is going to provoke people. Sharing the gospel is going to make you unpopular. Sharing the gospel is shining light into a dark room where people have been living in darkness so long that when the light comes in, they're blinded and they're repulsed by it. So should you say, well, you know, I'm not going to shine the light because I really, I care for these people. If you care for them, share Jesus with them. 
share with them the truth. That's what Paul and Silas and Timothy were doing. We just got back from Turkey. We experienced some things in, in, in that trip, and I encourage you, when we do these biblical tours, you need to go. Why? Because it puts everything in perspective. One of the amazing things about this Turkey trip is the amount of ground that Paul traveled by foot or by horse and how he went from place to place. At least we had a bus. But he, would, he kept going to these places where they would just abuse him. What moved him to go and to share the gospel in such a way that he would travel, often at his expense, it was for the fact that he had been saved. He, he could have settled in and stayed in Jerusalem. He could have stayed in Antioch. He could have done what he, But no, there were people that hadn't heard the gospel that were living in darkness. And he was passionate to share that gospel and to take that gospel to places where it hadn't been preached. And even when he would go, he would be rejected. Yet he was moved. And he took Silas and Timothy with him on this second trip, going through Asia, Macedonia, which is Greece, we last left him being persecuted in Philippi. If you remember, Fred shared about the Philippian jailer and, and how he was wrongly accused and thrown into jail. And when they realized he was a Roman, it's like, quick, let's get him out of here before anybody finds out. Paul's like, no, we're not playing that game. Paul would move on. And as we're picking up today, Paul is going to be with his team being forced out of town, but it's not a bad thing for him because he's just going to move on to the next city. He's going to go across this road that will cover the Ignatian Way, a 500-mile road that runs east and west that connects a Roman road. And what was Paul's ultimate goal? Rome. Why? You ever heard the saying, all roads lead to Rome? He wanted to go to Rome because he wanted to share the gospel. He wanted to go and he wanted to... He wanted to share the gospel with Caesar. He, this guy had big ambitions. Yet he was under a constant attack all the way through. And everywhere he went, he unapologetically preached the gospel, stood in the gap, took the hits, so that people would be saved. As we'll see, many are saved. And when we look at just how that... We are here today because of people unapologetically preaching the gospel. Somebody was bold enough to share Jesus with you. And that is where we're going to see Paul going today. Let's stand as we read our passage this morning, Acts 17, 1 through 15. When we read this, it's super important that you just say, God, speak to me from your word. I need to be background noise. The Holy Spirit needs to be front and center. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with large numbers of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob. And they set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. 
And when they didn't find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authority, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Well, they stirred up the crowd in the city and authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately set Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, and they left. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So Luke is writing the narrative of the beginning, uh, beginnings of the church to a man named Theophilus, lover of God. Theophilus wanted to know how the church began. So, so Luke would write his first gospel, and then he would write the Acts of the Apostles, which is the second part. So the church started with the gospel, and then the Acts of the Apostles is how the church would grow and be established within these lands. And so as Paul is moving and his team is moving from, from Philippi, he's coming to Thessalonica to the gospel and, and preach the gospel that is there. And he's on this journey. Now, I have a map that I want to show you. You can see that top line from Philippi on the right that runs all the way across to Thessalonica and then the green arrow to Berea, and then he'll drop down along that coast. That road, the orange road that is there, is called the Ignatian Way. It's a 500-mile Roman road. It would be kind of like Highway 5. It, it, it was the main road, the main drag for all of those cities. And so Paul, leaving Philippi, would go 32 miles to his first stop. That would be at Amphipolis. And then the, another 32 miles to Apollonia. And then another 35 miles to Thessalonica. 35 miles in his journeys. That, that would take him maybe a day and a half. 25, 26 miles was kind of the average that they would go. On our trip to Turkey, we walked 65 miles. We covered a lot of ground. And, you know, I'm thinking of this Paul guy, man, to walk that road. But that was kind of what they did. Now, he stops in these two cities, and they're not mentioned. There's nothing really mentioned them, most probably because there was no synagogue there. And Paul had an agenda. What was Paul's agenda? To go to the largest cities possible in order to preach the gospel. Thessalonica would have about 200,000 people in it. Large city. Interesting, it seems that there was only one synagogue. These would have been Hellenistic Jews, or they were, they were these Greek Jews, converts, proselytes that were there within this. And it was Paul's desire to be able to preach the gospel. We know that, that Thessalonica had been around a long time. It was founded in 315 B.C. And then it was overtaken by Rome in 167 B.C. 
But then later, as a reward for being faithful, they were giving what was known as free city status in 42 B.C. And you say, well, Kerry, why is that important? It's super important because if you were in the Roman Empire and you got free city status, that meant you got to rule your own city. You got to be able to set the rules. And you got to govern your own city. That's going to be important because of what happens with Jason here in a moment. Within this, Paul was evangelizing this, this whole area and he would come into this town and he came into the synagogue in, in Thessalonica. And the text tells us that it was three Sabbaths. Now, whether it was three consecutive Sabbaths or it was three different Sabbaths at the opportunity, Paul was still a Pharisee and a rabbi. So he would go into a, a synagogue and have the opportunity. And after they would read from the law, they would read from the writings, they would say a prayer and, and maybe give an exhortation. They would open it up to traveling rabbis to be able to speak. That was Paul's in. That was the way that he was able to go in. And so they say, well, is there anybody that would like to share something? Paul's like, I would like to share. You know, and, and so he would share and he would share the gospel with them. We know that he stayed there a bit longer, though. As we take a look at this, this mission trip to Thessalonica, we can also read in line the letters that Paul would write to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. These are, these are letters that he would write back to this place where he stopped. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 9, it says this, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship and how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, so we proclaim the gospel of God to you. Now, what does that mean? Here's something interesting. When Paul was in Thessalonica, he worked as a tent maker. He stayed there for a period of time, and he decided not to live off of the donations of the people, but he took his job. He was bivocational. And so he was a tent maker, mending tents. Would he go in? He was a laborer, and he would pick up work. Why? Because he didn't want to be a burden to the church or to the people of that church. He was establishing this work. So he was a bivocational missionary, going in and preaching the gospel, but he wanted to make sure that he wasn't a burden to them. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7-10, to 10, we read, for you yourselves know how we ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be burdened to any of you. Not because we did not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would, fo that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. That's a powerful passage. What did Paul say? He said, look, we don't want to be a burden on any of you. As the church was growing, as people were coming to faith, he says, look, you guys take care of yourselves. We'll take care of ourselves. We don't want to be a burden. But there's a line in there. He says, look it. And, and to set an example, what was the example? If you don't work, you don't eat. How would that play out in our modern day society? I like that rule. So we look at this and we find truth in Scripture to be able to do that. Now, why would Paul make that statement? Because he's giving light in the, in, to us of the culture. As we're going to read and as we read through, there were some people in the marketplace, the Agora, that were busybodies that weren't working. 
And these same people, I'll say it ahead of time, these same people were guilty of raising the mobs. Mob mentality is often grown and, and lifted up by people that have nothing better to do with their life. And they rally around. So these Jews, as we'll see it, and we'll unpack it in a minute, they go find some people, we'll explain later, that they will call loafers. Paul was also in Thessalonica long enough to actually receive finances and support from the city of Philippi, from the Philippian jailer in the place where he just got kicked out. So Philippi heard that he was in Thessalonica and heard that he was working. So what did they do? They sent money to him in Thessalonica to help support the ministry that was going on. Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 to 16 says this, You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. You say, well, Carrie, why is that important? Because it gives us the timeline of how long he's there. He's there long enough to take a job, He's there long enough that he needs to provide for himself. And he's there long enough for multiple, multiple donations from Philippi to be sent to him. This is the context of his preaching in the synagogue. So it's more than, I believe, just three Sabbaths in a row. He's there making an impact as a missionary. What was his message? Verse 2 says, And according to Paul's custom, he went in, Sabbath, and reasoned with them from what? Scriptures. Have you ever heard the term sola scriptura? Scripture alone. Paul didn't go in giving opinion. He found the connection point. In the, in the synagogue, they would have been studying the writings of the prophets and the law. So Paul says, look it, here is our common ground in our common language. Let's bring out the scriptures. And he's going to argue and he's going to provoke and he's going to encourage. In fact, there's three ways that he evangelizes. He begins to reason from the Scriptures. He explains the Gospel from the Scriptures. And third, he proved from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Where would he start? Guess what? Genesis 3.15. What was he proving? That the Messiah, the Christ, would be a suffering Messiah. That he would have to die and he would rise again. But in the religious community, they got to the place where they, they created this false Messiah in their mind that he's going to be this king that comes and, and establishes and kicks the Romans out and does all of these things. He says, no, you've got the wrong Messiah. He's a suffering Messiah. And in the Jewish mindset, they're like, there is no way that the Messiah is going to suffer. There's no way he's going to be humbled in such a way. Paul says, yeah, the scriptures prove it. He would most likely speak, as I said, Genesis 3.15, Psalm 22, Isaiah 52, verses 13, all the way to Isaiah 53.12. He would bring them out and say, let me tell you what the Scripture says. If you want to preach Jesus, preach Him from the Scripture. God's Word needs to be the authority. People need to see God's Word as the authority. But what does Satan want to do? He wants to take the Word of God and He wants to throw it out. And we need to bring the Word of God back to the center of our conversations within this, as Paul did. 
Why? Because that is what changes people's lives. How do we know that? Because it says that some were persuaded. From hearing the Scripture and hearing from the Scriptures that Jesus, verse 3, would rise from the dead. This is the Jesus I proclaim to you. Verse 4 says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. He was having an impact. If we want to see revival, preach Jesus from the Scriptures. Know your Bible. Know your Bible. Know the Word of God. And, and people will come to faith. Why? Because they're believing the truth of God's Word. It's the power of God that brings about this salvation. Acts 20, verse 4 shows some of the people that were saved by name. It says this, And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and Aristus, and Sigidusis of Thessalonica, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. Paul was going around making disciples. But where did it all start? The Word of God. You can meet with people, have a cup of coffee. Bring the Word of God. You can meet with your spouse, with your kids. Bring the Word of God. Bring out the Scriptures. That is where lives are changed. But it didn't go well in the town. Verses 5-9 through nine tells us that there were some jealous Jews. Notice it says this, And the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. The Jews. Here is, Fred talked last week about the word but. <laughs> The but, in, in when you're studying, when there's a word but there, it means that there's a change. It says, but, but the Jews. What did the Jews do? The Jews, these would have been some people that were adhering only to the law, but they didn't want the gospel message. They didn't like Paul's message at all, and they became jealous. They became jealous because they, Paul was raising converts. People were leaving Judaism in the synagogue and they were going to Christianity. They didn't like that. You think about well, why. Well, I came up with, with a couple of reasons. One, they were jealous because their attendance was dropping. Their attendance was dropping. How many do we have at synagogue? I don't know. You know, this guy and this guy and this guy and his family, they're not coming anymore because they're going to this home group that is over here that's meeting. Well, if we keep going like that, then we're going to start losing money. we got people leaving. And with people goes their pocketbook. Were they jealous? Yes. Why? Because their institution was being damaged. I really don't care whether you attend this fellowship or you attend a fellowship down the street. What I care is that you're going to a fellowship that teaches the Word of God. And that you are growing in the Word of God. And whatever flavor, preacher, teacher, music, whatever it is, Lord bless you. As long as you are learning the Word of God. These guys were jealous. And what did they do? This, this, they became antagonists. It was the same thing that was happening with Paul everywhere he went. As this new movement was going on in Antioch, we read... 
in Acts 13:45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things that Paul spoke in blasphemy. In Iconium, Acts 14:2. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. In Lystra, Acts 14:19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having won over the crowds and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he would be dead. This isn't a new game for Paul. He knew it. He knew that everywhere he went, he would make people angry. Did that stop him? No. Paul continued to unapologetically preach Jesus, regardless of the outcome. So what did they do? They got these wicked men. Well, uh, you study a little bit about wicked. These wicked men are really described in Greek as loafers, lazy people. They were people that were busybodies, not willing to work, that hung out in the marketplace. And what did these jealous Jews? They went and they got the the, the lowest dregs of society to bring them out and create a mob. Well, let's, let's go ahead and let's burn some things. Let's destroy some things. Why? We got nothing else to do. I know we never see that today. But again, Paul would write back to the church in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 11. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, he's not to eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Here again, Paul says, if they don't work, they don't eat. And further, he says, and not only are they not doing anything, but they're going from house to house, busybodies, getting in everybody's business. One of the the famous connection points was the concerned citizens of Thessalonica. I know we don't have anything like that here. <laughs> but they come. And, and they're looking for Paul and they're looking for Silas. They know where he's been staying. He's been staying at Jason's house. Most likely Jason was also a tent maker. They kind of hung out together. And Jason would have been a new convert. Jason's hosting him. They get to Jason's house and they're like, we want Paul, we want Silas. Jason's like, they're not here. Most likely this was where the home study was going on. They grab a hold of Jason and they grab a hold of the other Christians there. They drag them to the city leaders. Now, who were the city leaders? Well, these city leaders, in, in, in Latin, they were the polytarchs. The word polytarch literally means city leader. They were the city leaders and they had all authority for the city. So they drug them over to the city leaders, the polytarchs the self-governors of Rome, and they brought three accusations against Jason and the Christians that were there. The first charge was they were troublemakers and they're turning the world upside down. Well, there's truth in there. Yes. They are turning the world upside down. And yes, they're causing trouble to your society and your lifestyle because you are living in darkness and in sin. Is it worth getting angry over? Well, only if you want to continue in your sin. The threat was truth in that Christianity is counterculture. And if you are a Christ follower, you will be countercultural. You will be. Light and darkness cannot dwell in the same place. And, and Paul would write to the church of Corinth and say, there is no fellowship between Christ and Belial or the gods of this world. 
As a Christ follower, you must live countercultural because the spirit of you is different than the spirit is in the world. It's huge. The second charge. They were harboring seditious people. Jason, Christians, you are guilty by association because you were hanging out with Paul. So therefore, you must be guilty. You're complicit with this. The third charge. Paul and Silas were charged with defying Caesar's laws. It's interesting to me that how a religious bias becomes a political statement. They were upset because they were teaching Jesus as the Messiah. This is a religious issue, a spiritual issue. But the government doesn't care about religious or spiritual issues. They want politics. So how do we get some ground in order to destroy and stop this? Well, let's make it political. They're teaching against Caesar. Well, what were they teaching? That there's another king besides Caesar... And the worship of Caesar as being the high God, the only king, was premier. Now, were they teaching that there's another king besides Caesar? Yes. Was it about the king on earth? No. It's a heavenly kingdom. But they didn't talk about that part. They only used what they could against him. Did they ever make that accusation against Jesus? They did. When they talked about his kingdom, when Jesus talked about his kingdom not being of this world, Luke 22, 2 4, John 19, verse 12 and verse 15, these were the same allegations that were brought against Caesar. Why? Because this world does not accept the kingdom of God within this. And so the kingdom of God is the kingdom over all kings. Now, I've got to give kudos to the polytarchs. They take hold of the situation. They listen to the situation. They don't have Paul and Silas there. They go to Jason and they say, look at Jason, we're going to put you under financial bond. You need to give us money. Like the government always wants money. You need to give us money as a bond and promise us that you won't host Paul and Silas anymore. So Jason posts bond and Paul and Silas need to leave. It's interesting that Paul would view this in his letter back to the church of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2.18 as spiritual warfare. Note, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, but yet Satan hindered us. Paul recognized the fact that by coming back to that city would put the Christians at jeopardy so he would stay away. He would write letters, but he would stay away. He would end up sending Timothy there. But what's interesting is this, that he saw that as spiritual warfare. Do you realize that the oppression that we have as Christ followers is demonic? Satan is opposing us, so we need to know the battle. And we need to know how to fight that battle, and that's through prayer. The real revolution was these pagans, idolaters. The fact is that these pagans and idolaters were turning away from idols. And Satan didn't like that. And whenever you bring about change, there is going to be resistance. Don't back down. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says, For they themselves report about us of what kind of reception we had with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What was the impact of Paul's ministry in Thessalonica? People were coming out of the darkness and into light. People were turning away from idols and turning to the living God. That's the mission of the church. That's the mission of the Christ follower. But unfortunately, 
they were run out of town. Paul would preach unapologetically Jesus, and he would turn Thessalonica upside down, turn the world upside down. So in verse 10, it says that they were taken out by night. Immediately they sent them away by night to Berea, where they arrived in the synagogue. So Paul leaves there, and he continues down this road. Now, I'll show you the map again. If you take a look at the map, you can see that Thessalonica is a border city, is a harbor city, and then they turn inland. They go off of the Ignatian Way, and they go inland into the, um, the hills known as Mount Vermont, and it was along the Mount Olympian Range. Now, Berea was kind of an out-of-the-way city, although it did have a synagogue. It was a place where Paul would go. They had a synagogue. He had the opportunity to take a pause. What's interesting, though, to me is the, the reference and the comparison between the Bereans and the Thessalonians. Did you pick it up when we read it? It says now in verse 11, these were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether they were so. The word noble-minded literally means high-born, high-minded, but not in, a, not in a stuffy kind of way. They were more noble-minded because of they were educating themselves. But how were they educating themselves? They were in the Word daily. They had the practice of being in the Word daily. Even as Jews in the synagogue, they were in the Word daily. And so when Paul would show up and he would teach them in the synagogue, he would preach the same message that he did to Thessalonica to the Bereans. That the Savior, the Messiah, will suffer, die, and rise again. Same message, different effect. Different effect. What was the different effect? They received Paul's word. And then they studied to see if Paul's word was true. They received it with seriousness. And to be able to accept it. And you got to love the phrase daily. What does that mean? It means they just didn't come into the synagogue and just hear it and walk away. They heard the message and they went back and they studied. Is it right? Is it true? Is Genesis 3.15, Psalm 22, Isaiah 52, is that really what it says? You need to be in that place where you receive the Word of God and study to see if it's true. Don't just take some preacher's word for it. Study for yourselves because it's the Word of God that transforms lives. And as a result of that, as we read, there were, there were different people that were coming to faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says this. So faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by what? The Word of Christ. That's powerful. You want your faith to grow? Get in the Word. You want to grow in the faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Get into the Word because it's the Word of God that declares these things. So these Jews of the synagogues, and, and many of them were, were prominent. And, and notice it says that prominent men and women were accepting the Lord. They were coming to faith. Acts 20, verse 4. He accomplished so patter of Berea. And all of these people, we read that earlier. And in verse 16, 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius. 
and Jason and so Powder. These are people that not only got saved, but they really got saved and they joined the ministry. And they grew. Why? Because the Word of God was nourishing them and strengthening them within that. And Paul's teaching was meeting with these people. But, here's that but again. Verse 13. When the Jews at Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well. Doing what? Agitating the crowds. And immediately the brethren sent Paul to go as far by sea as into Athens. Understand this, that there are going to be antagonists in every aspect of your life. And if you're going to name the name of Christ and you're going to follow God and you're going to grow in the faith and knowledge of Jesus, and if you are going to share your faith, and you should, there's going to be people against you. In fact, I would say that if you don't have people opposing you because of your testimony, then you're not giving much of a testimony. It's that important. These antagonists from Thessalonica, they heard and they wanted to stop Paul at all costs. Silence is witness. It's interesting, though, that they made it personal. Because as we read through the text, it says, And they went after Paul, but Silas and Timothy could stay in Berea. They went after Paul. And Paul would leave. He would go to Athens. He would eventually send for Silas and Timothy to come to Athens. They wouldn't hook up with him again until he got to Corinth. Acts chapter 18, we'll, we'll get to that eventually. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, so they would reconnect. So how do we turn the world right side up? Preach Jesus. How do we make things better? I can tell you this, you can vote all day long, you can advocate politically till the cows come home. You want to make things better. Preach Jesus. Give them the Word of God. And let the Word of God transform their hearts. Revival begins in the individual. Spreads to the home. Spreads to the community. And thereby turning the world right side up. Because Satan has already turned the world upside down. And don't let oppression, don't let these other things affect you. Unapologetically preach Jesus. And present the gospel with truth. Some will listen, some won't. Not your problem. Not your problem. That's up to God. What do you need to do? Be faithful. Like Paul. And continue on. And who knows who your Sopater, your Jason, or who else might come to faith. You're here because somebody gave you Jesus. You need to share Jesus with others. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you've given us the power of the gospel to transform lives. It's the power unto salvation to all who believe, whether they're Jew, Greek, or, or Gentile, or whatever. Lord, help us to continue to present the truth. And in presenting the truth, people will come to know you until all that will be saved will be saved. Lord, we trust in you for the outcome. We know that we can't do this on our own. Holy Spirit, you are desperately needed to lead us, to guide us, to fill us, to equip us for that work of ministry. Speak to us through your word and speak to us in your heart. Help us to keep those divine appointments. 
that we might preach Jesus unapologetically. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
God, we confess we are needy people. We need you. Holy Spirit, we are desperate for your power, your presence, your guidance. As we go out this day, may we share the truth of the gospel. That Jesus, you are the Son of God. And that you came and took our place and died for our sins. And that all that believe in you, put their faith in you, that you died and paid their penalty for their sin. They can now be forgiven if they ask. And just as you rose again on the third day, we are given that promise of eternal life to rise again, to enter into your presence. May we share you, Lord Jesus, with all those that we see. And Lord, may you bring the increase into your kingdom. We thank you for our time. And as we go out, may everything we say and do make you smile. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a blessed week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.